This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Ladies and gentlemen, your weekly dose of sanity, December 22nd, 2021, the holiday edition of The Prevailing Narrative. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, So this week, um, I'll get to topics in just a minute, but one piece of this week's episode will be an interview with a gentleman named Dr. Peter Navarro. Peter Navarro was the director of Office of Trade and Manufacturing under President Trump um, and then was uh, head coordinator of the Defense Production Act once COVID hit. And just to give you a little kind of funnel into that interview, I think Peter and I wanted to talk to him for a long time because there's just very few people who are as front and center to the first phase of the pandemic in the White House with the the security briefings and it, Navarro in particular because he was on he, he was one of the lead China negotiators. Um, everyone forgets middle of January 2020 as COVID is is heating up around the world. Um, the U.S. Uh, Xi Jinping and the China delegates meet with uh, President Trump and American delegates on the front lawn of the White House to sign the first phase of the uh, of the trade deal. Right. So, you know, Everything was happening within that prism. And so someone like Peter, who was supposed to be kind of lead and front and center on the China issue, anything that came out of China, he saw first. So we get a firsthand account of a primary source who got to see everything from decisions around travel bans and therapeutics. You you think that the, that the Trump administration was kind of COVID denialist? Well, Peter Navarro was the first person in the administration to sound the alarm on COVID. He wrote a memo in late January, I believe it was January 29th, um, kind of sounding the alarm and telling everybody, hey, we We've got to circle the wagons and this is going to be a problem. Um, You think that if you're pro vaccine, Peter was intimately involved in the decision to begin Operation Warp Speed and the decisions around how to approach. Right. We didn't just know which vaccine was going to work and and how to produce them. There was a very specific thought process that went into it. And Peter contributed pretty significantly to that and a host of other topics. But the key point is people are going to do whatever they do. Right. But I don't want Pete, his association with Trump or he, he's a fan. Right. The guy worked for him. He worked for President Trump or for Donald Trump for four years. But in recent American life, what happened is that the inclusion of the name Trump in any topic seems to scramble it, right? Is that people make a decision based on whether they believe something or don't believe something based on what Donald Trump believes, right? So I think it's a helpful exercise if you hate Trump and many of you do, and I understand that, uh, or, you know, are not a fan of Peter Navarro's to see if you can go through the exercise of determining whether or not something is true, take Donald Trump out of the equation, okay? He does not matter, to, to the topic or to the, t- the decision. Um, and so as you hear Peter describe 
what he saw uh, during early 2020, uh, whether it's from China around therapeutics, the spread of the virus, PPE, dealing with people like Andrew Cuomo and Dr. Fauci. See if you can judge it on its own merits. Maybe you think he, maybe you don't like his perspective. Maybe you think he's wrong. That's fine. There's a lot of things that he said that I, you know, that I would question, particularly around hydroxychloroquine, although he makes some really good points around, you know, how the media drove that issue off the rails. So love. Uh, I definitely think it would be at the very least uh, a very thoughtful and engaging interview. And I think people enjoy it, you know, even and and once again, we're trying to go through the exercise of judging every source and every set of facts on its own merit as opposed to which side it, it supposedly is on. Um, so that'll be coming up after we go through a couple topics here. So last week, our maiden voyage, it was great. A lot of great feedback. Thank you so much for the support. Definitely a couple notes and definitely a couple legitimate notes. Uh, one, the feedback was, hey, this is a little too heavy on dunking on woke bullshit. And that's a fair note. Um, but wokery and this kind of perverted faux social justice is now the governing ethos of the American elite class with nearly universal institutional capture, right? So I'm going to be talking about it a lot because it's threaded itself into so many aspects of American life. If it was truly fringe, as many people claimed it would would remain when I started sounding the horn on this stuff, maybe 2014, 15, had it remained to just a bunch of annoying kids on college campuses and uh, something stupid, you know, some stupid campaign around a movie here and there. Great. You could definitely make the case that I'm I'm given overkill on this, um, but no, this is now the dominant framework for which people attack just about everything from corporate HR and PR to the entertainment industry to your child's schooling, and I think a lot of people have woken up to that over the last two to three years. So, um, point well taken, guy. This podcast will be on a, a ton more than just dunking on woke bullshit. But if you're not looking to dunk on some woke bullshit or not expecting that, probably hey. Uh, Probably not the podcast for you, but appreciate all the notes and feedback. Um, so this week, as we approach the holidays, it's a lot of battles. We'll talk about a lot of heads to head right right now. So one head to head, and this one is going to ramp up very quickly as it heads to the Supreme Court. Um, the fifth Circuit Court of Appeals versus the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals around the Biden administration's OSHA uh, uh, vaccine mandate. So just to refresh everybody. End of August, as things were kind of taped, you know, heating up around Afghanistan, all of a sudden, Joe Biden, eight months into his his administration um, and with the vaccine having been available for about eight months and for just about everyone, about four months, decides, hey, not enough people are getting vaccinated. I'm going to issue a just probably the most sweeping public safety mandate of all time, other than the lockdowns and via the Occupational Safety and Health Administration issue what's called an Emergency Temporary Standard, an ETS, uh, mandating that all employers with 100 or more employees require all employees to either be vaccinated or submit to consistent testing with a couple small exceptions. But the, the, the exceptions were so narrow, they don't really play into the analysis. Um, obviously, this picked the this picked the interest of a lot of people and a lot of people came out against it uh in particular a, a number of retail and trade organizations and some of the red state attorney generals in particular ken paxton attorney general for texas and there were a bunch of lawsuits filed one of them got to the fifth circuit last i believe it was early november and they the fifth circuit stayed the stayed the mandate. They said, hey, we, we think that those challenging the mandate have a high likelihood of success um, wherever this does land in court. And we for that, it, it, given their high likelihood, of, uh, high likelihood of success, we want to put the mandate on ice for the moment. Um, so what happens there, and this is kind of an interesting quirk of how the appellate court system works, is that they weren't the only lawsuit on this topic. So when there's so many lawsuits about the same topic, 
the courts try to funnel them together and then via lottery assign it to whichever circuit, you know, whichever circuit court of appeals through whatever process. I think it's pretty random. But anyways, it ended up with the Sixth Circuit and the Sixth Circuit dissolved the stay and allowed it to allow the mandate, the OSHA mandate to go forward. However, unsurprisingly, they directed that to the Supreme Court. And actually, as of today, the Supreme Court has ruled that it will hear uh, will hear an appeal on the OSHA mandate on January 7th. So I think this is probably the seminal showdown about the mandate. And so beyond just what this mandate implies, I think going through the ruling from the Fifth Circuit and the response from the Sixth Circuit, and even more poignantly, the the Fifth Circuit staying the the mandate was unit was uh, unanimous. The Sixth Circuit was two to one. In favor of the mandate was an Obama appointee. One was a George W. Bush appointee, and the Trump appointee was against the mandate. So, looking at the reasoning and how to, how they analyze the mandate, inseparable from analyzing COVID, I think is very interesting, very telling about how we should be thinking about this outside the court system, right? And judging our, our own personal decisions and private business decisions and things of that nature. So, okay, first off, and this is something that pops up a lot on the mandate discussion. All right. Uh, inherent in, a, and I said this last week, inherent in a mandate is that whoever doesn't comply with the mandate gets punished, right? So you're, res- you're punishing them. If you're restricting some, that's a restriction on civil rights and civil liberties. And I don't think that we can take that that lightly. Of course, you can't just say anything that restricts civil liberties or punishes people is per se unconstitutional because that would essentially eviscerate the notion of a law in the first place. The conversation around mandates has been far too flippant about people losing access to their livelihood or other basic life functions. And it's like, if you're going to deprive someone of that, you better have a really strong case. It can't just be something that was kind of dangerous. It's got to be something that really passes the smell test and is rock solid. And I think the in looking at the reasoning of the Fifth Circuit, it's, as I'll go into in a second, um, I don't think these mandates pass, pass that test. So there's a really good thread documenting the reasoning of the Fifth Circuit. The Twitter account is the real A-Rod 1984. Who the hell knows what the rest of that account is, but they did a great job on this. Um, so first off, OSHA's only issued 10 ETSs ever. Six were challenged in court and only one of the six that was challenged made it through. So this is something that doesn't happen very often at all. As the court acknowledges, OSHA was enacted by Congress to assure Americans safe and healthful working conditions and to preserve our human resources. It was not and likely could not under the Commerce Clause and Non-Delegation Doctrine intended to authorize a workplace safety administration in the deep recesses of the federal bureaucracy to make sweeping pronouncements on matters of public health affecting every member of society in the most profound ways. A mandate that says you cannot work for this company or you can you do not have the right to be of gainful employment if you don't satisfy x test i mean that's pretty sweeping that's what once again people are too cavalier about this doesn't mean that you that no there's no argument ever for a mandate but it's got to be pretty significant so they go on that the mandate is both over-inclusive and under-inclusive okay um they say it's fatally flawed on its own terms It applies to all employers in all industries. There's no effort to account for obvious differences between the risks, right? Uh, We know that the risk from COVID is heavily stratified by age and health to begin with. Once again, you have to be crafting laws that deprive people of their civil liberties in the most narrowly tailored manner as possible. You can't go fishing with dynamite. You can't just throw down a universal law that doesn't uh, account for the, the particulars and the distinctions of the situation. But they do that. For instance, there could be a business that has 101 employees that are on a factory floor, right? They're really close to each other. The employees pass by each other every day. Could be another employer that has 200 employees, but they're all distributed. They're all remote workers. How does it make sense that requiring that they be 
vaccinated to have their to, to maintain their job makes sense, right? Or you could have a workplace that's all young people. Things involving athletics, you're going to have a lot of indiv- younger younger individuals. It's going to be heavily weighted in that favor, and the 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 smelts the the numbers do not pass muster. That that COVID prov- uh, presents a grave danger to these people. In all likelihood, they're going to survive. Doesn't factor in natural immunity. Monu- like mammoth amounts of evidence that people who got infected previously, either one doesn't mean that they can't ever get infected again, period, but low likelihood, incredibly low likelihood of severity and not a massive delta, not a massive difference in their likelihood of reinfection or breakthrough case or a severe, uh, a, a severe case from those who are vaccinated. So how do you deprive one person of life, liberty and, and the ability to earn a living uh, based on that fairly nominal and immaterial difference? They, they don't make any attempt to factor any of this in. The mandate's also under-inclusive, right? Because if you're saying that it's such a grave threat and grave concern, why are we stopping at 100 employees? What about the businesses with 98 employees? Do they not get the same protection? If this is so dangerous and so dire and so grim that every business in America affecting 80 million employees needs to have this mandate, then why stop at 100? Why not go down to five, right? What about all those businesses? As the example I used a moment ago, a knitting factory, 97 employees right on top of each other all day long. They don't have to get vaccinated under this OSHA ruling, but a business with 200 people, 1,000 people that are lightly, you know, not densely populated or even not in the same office, they have to get vaccinated. How does this make sense? You have to craft this with more particularity. And there's also, and this factored into the, 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 the ruling as well, um, this was under this is supposed to be the emergency testing standard. So is this an emergency? Um, the thinking being, Hey, if this is an emergency, why Joe, why didn't you, uh, why didn't you rule on it your first day in office or why didn't you rule on it in April or in May? How did it all of a sudden become an emergency now in late August, early September? Like how, how did the, um, why were emergency conditions present now, but not previously? And there's a valid counter argument that for most the first year of COVID that it was a different administration and Donald Trump, uh, Trump's administration was never going to mandate something like, like this and the, the vaccine wasn't available. But I don't know, starts to get a little questionable if OSHA doesn't consider that there to be emergency conditions for the first 17, 18 months of COVID, why all of a sudden is an emergency? And it goes on beyond that, you know, unclear if COVID poses grave danger. The ETS itself concedes the effect of COVID-19 is mild on most of the population. 80% of Americans, adult Americans are already vaccinated and the administration Essentially, they admit like people who are vaccinated, if you do get a breakthrough case, it's incredibly unlikely to be severe. So how do the people who are not vaccinated pose such a threat? So these are all problems that the Fifth Circuit noted with the vaccine mandate. Um, Went to the Sixth Circuit. Like I said, two judges voted in favor of the mandate. One voted uh, uh, to support uh, to support the stay on the mandate. And I don't know, man, the Sixth Circuit's approach was essentially hey, COVID is is very dangerous. This agency is tasked with ruling on safety. Thus, we don't really have much standing whatsoever to, to judge their policy. There's no real constitutional question or analysis. And I think they really... They really passed the buck. And I think that's why this case is going to the Supreme Court. Um, If you even look at the top of the ruling right off the bat, this is from the Sixth Circuit, Judge Jane Stranch. Recognizing that the old normal is not going to return, employers and employees have sought new models for a workplace that will protect the safety and health of employees who earn their living there. Hey, it's the there's a new normal. Like, 
all right, you have to explain why. And the Sixth Circuit's ruling, I think if you read it, I didn't read the entire thing, but quite a bit. It doesn't really get into the details. It doesn't address over-inclusion or under-inclusion. It just says, well, you can err on the side of safety. It's not unconstitutional just because it errs on the side of safety. Probably its most legitimate argument is that I don't agree with it, but at least it's pointed in the right direction, is that because it allows the testing option, meaning that if you don't want to get vaccinated, you can just get tested and wear a mask, that it that's narrow that that's enough tailoring. It's narrowly tailored enough just based on that that you're not infringing on people's civil liberties. And I don't know. I think it's a pretty they're they're pretty flimsy here. And I think that's acknowledged by the dissent. The one judge who ruled against the mandate and in favor of continuing the stay, her name was Joan Larson. Um, there's a reason, an article in Reason Magazine. Well, I guess it's a website at this point. Anyways, here's why the Sixth Circuit reinstated OSHA's vaccine mandate and why one judge disagreed. And they lay out Judge Larson's dissent in pretty stellar detail. And I don't know, man, if you go in and read Larson's dissent versus Stranch's ruling and see which one is more thorough and better reasoned. I mean, it's Larson by a mile. She mentions that the majority ruling doesn't really make sense. Says, the majority opinion initially agrees that an emergency standard must be more than reasonably necessary. It must be essential. But then that word and the concept disappear from the analysis. What starts as a demand for an essential solution quickly turns into an acceptance of any effective or meaningful remedy. And later, acquiescence to a solution with a mere reasonable relationship to the problem. That's the problem in general, is that a lot of people, not just vaccine mandates, but a lot of COVID restrictions in general. And this is what we're going back to the disease of something. There's a risk, there's a threat, and this is dangerous. Thus, anything to address that threat and that risk is justifiable. And no, you have to be more particular. You have to be more detailed. So talked about that a lot last week, but I think Larson seems to agree with me in that regard. Um, Other aspects of her dissent, she uses a imperfect but still useful analogy about a pizza parlor and a pizza parlor like you could mandate that everybody have to wear oven mitts at all times right and people people work at pizza parlors they get burned by stuff okay they could you know grab a pan uh uh, uh pizza's piping hot like some you know they get burned right and cook particularly people in the kitchen you don't mandate there's there's internal private that's good policy it's a best practice for everybody. but you, there's no law saying everybody uh, in a kitchen at a pizza parlor who's handling hot pizza has to wear oven mitts, right? And if you did that, you would stop a lot of people from harm and stop a lot of people from getting burned, right? Can you punish someone for not doing it? And that's the question that you have to ask. And so she gets, Larson also gets into the notion of a grave danger in the workplace. And you know, OSHA was, this is usually for toxic substances, stuff that if you come in contact with it at all, is in all likelihood going to land you in the hospital or some other grave health threat. Not COVID, which has, you know, forget death, hospitalization well below 1% for pretty much everyone below 60. It's hard to compare the two. So, you know, enough discussion about that. It's headed to the Supreme Court. And I think this case is going to have, it's probably going to be the biggest Supreme Court case in quite a while. It's going to have ramification, wide ranging ramifications, not just about vaccine mandates, but across the board. So, uh, another battle this week, uh, an entertaining one, good old Elon Musk and Senator Karen herself, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Elon Musk has kind of become, you know, villain number one for a lot of progressives because he's very wealthy. He doesn't seem to give a shit. And there's a lot of accusations that he doesn't pay taxes. Right. And he's they've kind of put a target on him as a member of this kind of alienated, undeservedly wealthy billionaire class. And, and they let go after him. 
Elizabeth Warren has noticed that amongst her constituents and uh, and taken some kind of gratuitous shots at Elon. So Elon was named Time Magazine's Person of the Year this year. And Elizabeth Warren decides to mouth off about this and goes to Twitter and tweets out the story with a, with a caption, let's change the rig tax code so the Person of the Year will actually pay taxes and stop freeloading off everyone else. Some strong words there, Liz. So Elon, not one to sit out a good Twitter battle, responds, one, you remind me of when I was a kid and my friend's angry mom would just randomly yell at everyone for no reason. With the follow-up, please don't call the manager on me, Senator Karen. <sighs> Liz, you walked right into that one. I mean, you, you got too many vulnerabilities. You're making it easy on Elon. But uh, Elon went after her, you know, shut her down pretty quickly. But, you know, as usual, we're not just looking at this little Twitter beef. What What's really going on there? Okay, so first off, uh, you know, I like looking into the background of a lot of these super successful kind of celebrity entrepreneurs and, and wealthy people, right? Because a, a lot of times there's a, their, their origination story is different than what people remember. Um, in particular for Elon and a lot of people, when I posted about this on social media, came, oh, he was born on third base. His dad owned a diamond mine. He came from a rich family. So I did, did a little digging on Elon. So yes, he did come from a wealthy family in South Africa. However, he, he says his dad is an asshole. He became estranged from his father. And in 1989, he moved with his mother to Canada to avoid military service in South Africa. 1995 drops out of a philosophy, a PhD program at Stanford, essentially to try his luck in the tech world. And everyone forget this is before dot, the dot com thing. Okay. This is barely any internet adoption whatsoever. You get a couple people using prodigy to see what, use their computer to find out what some baseball scores are, find out what the weather is. Very few people are using email. There's not much going on like to drop out of a Stanford program and, and pretty much a path to a, a comfy lifestyle to take to roll the dice in tech. I mean, that was pretty adventurous. And it was very adventurous in 1998, nine, 1995. It's like very few people were doing that. But he drops out. He, he founds a company called Zip2, which is kind of a city guide um, in 1999. It says that before the company became successful, he could not afford an apartment, instead rented an office and slept on the couch and showered at the YMCA and shared one computer with his brother and essentially says the website was up during the day and I was coding nonstop at night, seven days a week, all the time. Um, that's how most of these guys got successful. Okay. They didn't just, they didn't just throw some cash out there, use mommy or daddy's trust fund to fund a company. They made, they made immeasurable sacrifice, right? And they grinded, they made sacrifices that your average person is just not willing to make. And that was the first real money that Elon Musk made off zip two. Right. He, he got same thing with with Mark Cuban. Everyone thinks everyone traces Mark Cuban's wealth back to broadcast.com. And most of it is. But he had a company before selling selling uh, uh, computer software. And, you know, from what he says in his 20s, he pretty much grinded that seven days a week for about six, seven years, sold the company. And that was the first time he had real money. I think he made, you know, seven, eight million dollars mid nineties. It's pretty damn good. Um, so anyways, that's how Elon Musk originally made money. Interesting story. I'd love to dive more into at some point, but, um, PayPal came about because Elon started a company called X.com, which was one of the first federally insured online banks that merged with an online bank, another online bank called Confinity. Confinity was founded by Peter Thiel and Max Levichin. Um, and they had a payment system called PayPal. And that's how that all came together. It was from the merger of those two companies. And then there was a bit of a, a rift between Musk and Teal. Musk got Teal booted as CEO. 
the board became unhappy with Musk. They booted Musk and re- replaced Teal as, as CEO. Teal focused a little bit more on PayPal. And that's what grew, apparently, what turned PayPal into a monster. And they sold for hundreds of millions of dollars in, uh, in 1999. And that's when Elon exited with real money over $100 million. Um, so that's kind of the genesis of this guy uh, attaining wealth. And, you know, does that sound like the story of a freeloader? It's odd. Did he not pay taxes on the sales of those companies? Did he not pay taxes on any of his wealth through his 20s and 30s where he was making quite a bit of money? I mean, do we have any evidence of this? What is Elizabeth Warren's? What is Senator Karen's case for this guy who's he didn't make his money like Warren Buffett just investing in other people's companies? He started companies. He's made massive. He's been a massive innovator in clean energy, created price gone zero to one. He's created stuff that was not there before that's been used by people. Right. So where where does Elizabeth Warren get off calling him a freeloader and why is she doing it? So I'm thinking back and I'm not much of a fan of Elizabeth Warren now, but that wasn't always the case. First time I recall seeing Elizabeth Warren um, was around the financial crisis, 2008, 2009. She was a guest on the Bill Maher show a bunch of times. And you'd hear talk about what went wrong in the economy and the the financial crisis and the problems in the mortgage system. And it was like, wow, this woman seems really level-headed, smart. And you know, we got, we got to get her in here. We got, we need her. She should be making the rules. Like she's going to keep order in our financial system. And she, she was great. Right. And she's no dummy. I mean, she was running prior to her appearance on the political scene, you know, more, more, kind of viscerally. Um, she was a member of the FDIC and she was a, a very well, well-regarded economist, you know, private economist. And, um, and she was a pretty level-headed woman. Um, much le- and sh- I think showing the drift of Elizabeth Warren from someone who would acknowledge the value of innovators and ju- was really just trying to clean up a mess in 2008, 2009 to someone who's shamelessly and gratuitously demonizing anyone who happens to be very successful in 2021 really shows an unfortunate drift in the trajectory of where our discourse is around wealth, success, work, what have you. Um, and also, once again, why did Senator, why did Senator Karen go after Elon? Um, you know, she's not dumb. She knows why or why, uh, and I'll get into Elon's tax situation in just a second, but she's not dumb. She knows that he's been paying his taxes and to the extent that he hasn't, it's because it has been attaining wealth via the stock in his company he doesn't get a salary, he doesn't get bonus. He just takes his his compensation in Tesla stock, some of which are in options that are expiring in August 2022, which is why he's selling a bunch, which is why he's going to have a massive tax bill this year. Elizabeth Warren's not dumb. She knows what she's doing. So then you look on the Internet, Elizabeth Warren's Facebook page is spouting 15 minutes after she tweeted Elon and Elon tweeted her back, spouting uh, uh, sponsored ads trying to dunk on Elon. Here's one from Warren Democrats, Inc. Elon Musk is whining like a baby to his millions of Twitter followers. He must be scared because he knows what every other billionaire in America does, that he's been freeloading off working people and that I won't back down from a fight. This was completely cynical and corrupt by Warren. She knew what she was doing. She's falsely labeling a high profile target so she can go and fundraise because she knows that's the red meat that her followers and a more progressive base want to hear from. And it's really, you know, it's very undignified to know a woman as credentialed and informed as Elizabeth Warren is just going to go ahead and do this gratuitously so she can try to fundraise off misleading posts around, you know, calling Elon Musk, who's an incredible American success story, who freaking slept at the office 
you know, on a cot and coded seven days a week in order to attain his wealth, a freeloader. And I think it's a really bad sign of, of where we're at. And I think the people, I know some people, I, I don't know a ton of Elizabeth Warren fans, but some people, you know, warm up to her. I think we got to understand she's dragging people like her dragging the discourse down. People like her, they, they've got to be held accountable. I hate, I have even more animus for people who are smart enough to know better. But otherwise, there's some idiots out, like a Marjorie Taylor Greene or on the liberal side, Cory Bush. These are not smart people. They don't have like levels of actual raw intelligence that like even puts them on my radar. Elizabeth Warren's a very smart person. She knows what she's doing. It's kind of craven. And, you know, we can see what she's doing with the lawn. And so in terms of a lawn, and there's actually a very good CNN, uh, a CNN.com piece describing his tax situation. But yeah, he hasn't been paying many taxes the last few years because all his money's been tied up in Tesla stock and you don't pay until there's a liquidity event and a variety of liquidity events. And they, this one gets into the details of, you know, of, of his batch of options expiring next year and why he's selling. So it's an interesting piece can be Googled at CNN, why Elon Musk will end up with an $11 billion tax bill this year. A headline that usually looks like uh, uh, is more clickbaity, but it's actually a pretty good article and suggest you check it out. Moving on from Elon versus Senator Karen. So something that everybody was talking about this week, a Joe Rogan podcast with a doctor named Peter McCullough. So if you are a COVID skeptic, if you are suspicious of the kind of common mainstream establishment orthodoxy around COVID, its origin the, it, how dangerous it is, how to handle it, whether or not vaccine mandates are are necessary, you know, how effective the vaccine. If you if you're skeptical of the conventional wisdom, wow, did this one support many uh, of your suspicions? Because um, Peter McCullough, very well credentialed doctor, is a cardiologist and apparently has something like 600 citations. I mean, he's been published more than just about everybody. He's got a very impressive track record. And he's able to give two and a half, three hours of of seemingly very, you know, cogent and, and informed uh, uh, commentary on how so many aspects of what we've been told about COVID by the mainstream are wrong um, from, you know, some pretty sizable, it all tracks back to his conclusion and his thesis that this is being manufactured and directed for one purpose to promote va mass vaccination across the population, which we've never seen before. And he's got a point in terms of the mass vaccination, and he's also directionally correct about a lot of stuff. But I don't know. I was a little skeptical when I heard a number of his claims, as I'm sure a lot of other people are. And then there's a doctor named Zubin Damania, um, and he goes through in, in a very, I, I really, so he, here's what I think about and, and it, how I'm thinking about this. And it goes back to what I said about Dr. Peter Navarro. People need to be able to ingest information from a number of sources and acknowledge that some of the, each source may have some truth and some falsehood, right? And then meld that together, right? And come up with some sort of fusion. So I think it's an incredibly good, if you want to understand your biases, really go through an exercise where you're testing out your own beliefs and hear from a, you know, uh, and, and, Get a fuller perspective. I think listening to the full McCullough interview with Rogan and then listening to uh, Demania's, he calls, I'm not calling him Z-Dog, okay? He calls his podcast the Z-Dog podcast. I'm, uh, none of this attaching dog to your name. The guy's name is Zubin Demania. Anyways, I think listening to both the McCullough interview and then the Demania breakdown and essentially critique of the interview and McCullough's claims is really good. And I think uh, it, Demania, he explains the types of biases and rhetorical tricks that McCullough uses, but he also acknowledges a few things. And one just to back up here, Demania is is one of the 
better COVID skeptics, right? But he's part of a group of contrarian doctors like Vinay Prasad, Marty Mockery, and Monica Gandhi, and a few others that have been really good about calling out the bullshit orthodoxy around COVID where it's wrong, right? And that, and acknowledging, and, and what what Damania does that's, I think, awesome, is that he acknowledges like, hey, even the stuff that I think McCullough's bullshitting you about, I understand why you might believe it because there's been so many mainstream narratives that have turned out to be bullshit. The over, the, the, trying to bully people out of reasonable positions, not acknowledging natural immunity, flip-flopping on things like masks or whether or not you can get uh, uh, breakthrough infections from the COVID vaccine. Like Joe Biden, you, you can hear the clips all over the place in July 2021 is talking about how if you get the vaccine, you can't, it will stop transmission. Well, that turned out to be blatantly false, right? And it doesn't mean that, that that's a single point of failure that that essentially invalidates the vaccine overall. I don't think it does. But if you make claims like that and they turn out to be wrong, you can't be surprised when people lose trust in you and, and your pronouncements, right? And lose trust in the system. So I think Demania does a fantastic job in both, you know, being specific about some of the places where McCullough goes overboard, but not being gratuitous about it and not being, not, not badgering people, not vilifying people and understanding like, hey, I I don't blame you for being skeptical of what the mainstream is telling you. It's just that McCullough, he fudges some numbers, he fudges some arguments, he says some stuff that doesn't quite add up. Um, but I think I, I, like the, I, I like the exercise of going through both of these. And also, I think that it kind of frames this pandemic. And now that it's coming to its end, two years, we're looking back on it. And I get in this battle with a lot of people a lot of the time. It's about essentially in the way that I put it is, is COVID this pandemic, is this plandemic or is this office space? I believe it's office space. Plandemic is how Peter McCullough frames it, that it's the sinister plot with, that that is, you know, a, kind of a, the deliberate, deliberate conspiracy of some shadowy, unidentifiable figures all for a certain purpose, right? And everything else can be understood within that prism. I don't know. If, I don't know if I buy that, man. There's there's too much fragmentation and differentiation across different territories, across different countries, and trying to keep that all together. And for instance, like McCullough makes a couple claims that are, you know, they're not just they're not. I'm not just skeptical. They're outright wrong that the the vaccine was being developed before COVID was even announced. That's wrong. And in, in particular, one of the, if you want to find value in interesting pieces of the, of my interview with Peter Navarro, I mean, Peter Navarro can tell you what the status of the vaccine was in March 2000, in February 2020. It's like, okay, if the, there was a vaccine being developed for COVID and they knew about this beforehand, well, the Trump administration's in on it because Trump and Navarro, they, they claim that there was a decision, a discussion and a decision to um, jumpstart development of vaccine in February 2000. 2020. So if there's some sinister plot to vaccinate everybody, the Trump administration, it completely passed the Trump administration's radar, including very skeptical, hardcore contrarian, no, no, you know, hard bullshit detector guys like Peter Navarro. So that's kind of ridiculous. He also mentions that there is a Johns Hopkins study that one of one of his supportive pieces of evidence is a Johns Hopkins study from a, a couple of years ago that describes a lot of the conditions that we saw during the pandemic. And it's like, what do you think research papers and product project projections are, right? When the military runs a war game, they're trying to run a simulation of a likely scenario that might happen. And so if we're aware of SARS and MERS and these other coronaviruses, then okay, if you've got people studying infectious diseases, they're going to consider the possibility that something like what happened with the coronavirus might happen. That's like, that'd be seen like if, if the military runs a war game in the South China Sea and we end up going to war with China, that means the military deliberately planned, planned the start of the war. It's like, no, they figured that this was a possible contingency and they ran it.
and they ran a simulation. So he does some other stuff. I mean, also Clint, you know, some pretty bold claims that nobody has ever gotten uh, COVID twice. It's like, and then he mentions that his explanation is that anyone who tested positive twice, it was dead particle cells and that it was just the flu or some other sickness and the dead particles are, you know, with the overly sensitive PCR test is why you tested positive. Well, okay, well, what about all those people who tested positive for COVID, tested negative, and then got sick, had symptoms, and tested positive again? Like, what about the symptoms? Did the symptoms trigger the dead particles? Because if the dead particles were going to show up on the PCR test, these people never would have shown up negative in the first place. So um, there's a lot, you know, and and Demania goes into more detail about a lot of the flaws in McCullough's thinking. Um, and I highly, once again, I recommend them together, right? Because there's a little truth in the McCullough interview and he's directionally correct. He just outkicks his coverage in a number of ways. So I think in order to test out biases and go through the, the practice of looking at multiple sources that disagree with each other, both of which have validity, uh, if you got the time, it's Christmas this week, you got more, I, I think it's a good exercise to go ahead and listen to them both in tandem. I think... I, I side more with Demania, the explanation for a lot of the nonsense around COVID. It's office-based, man. It is, if you have ever worked at a big corporation or even more, even more so, if you've worked at a big, uh, if you've worked at a startup that has been bought by a big corporation, you see how the changes go from working at a young, small, nimble company to a big corporation. That's what you're seeing with COVID in the public health system. Fauci is no evil genius. Fauci is Lumberg, okay? He's a bumbling, hand-fisted bureaucrat who's better at talking in circles than he is at medicine. Okay, think about Lumberg was not a smart guy, but Lumberg made sure that everyone got the TPS ports in uh, around in time, that when you, you know, you needed a new stapler, that you filed the right memo. These types of bureaucratic processes, uh, you know, inefficient processes and sticking to processes over reason and, and effectiveness, that's what you're seeing a lot of with COVID. COVID. I see the last couple of years as as office space, the pandemic version, and not so much of these sinister forces all directing it towards, you know, for a common purpose. But that's just me. I, I hope I hope that that is a helpful way to think about this stuff. One last battle, you know, one last head to head that I want to talk about today. Um, it's not very topical. It's not something that's relevant to this week's news, but it's what I think is one of the most fascinating stories in recent American history. And it popped back up just on Twitter. So it was the battle between Hulk Hogan, Peter Thiel and Gawker for anyone. And I just think this is the most fascinating story that tells so much about our media environment, fake news, power, everything. And if you are interested in it, there's a book by Ryan Holiday called Conspiracy that goes into it in stunning detail. And I highly, I mean, if you put it at the top of your reading list, it's my belief. So anyways, um, Gawker, the kind of, you know, crass tabloid website, they early 2010s, they publish a sex tape with Hulk Hogan, uh, apparently having sex with the wife of his best friend, a Tampa Bay shock jock named Bubba the Love Sponge. God bless. So apparently, you know, Hogan was well, Hogan was down and out. He was having tough times. He you know lost a lot of money. He was having physical troubles, gotten divorced. His kids were in trouble. One had been in jail. And to cheer him up, Bubba the Love Sponge apparently said, hey, why don't you come over and fuck my wife? Uh, Hogan took him up on it. Unbeknownst to Hogan, Bubba the Love Sponge was recording it and the recording somehow got out and it got into the hands of Gawker and Gawker put it up. And that's not that's not legal. Like a person has an inherent right of privacy to conduct intimate activities in their own bedroom. Right. If, if Hogan had known that, like if, if, if he had released the tape himself or if he had done something in public, then the right of privacy does not apply. But in a private home, in a bedroom, like you have a right of privacy and without your permission, people can't um, re re release uh, a material showing what you're doing in there. Um, so 
Hogan, you know, he made the demands to take it down and Gawker had, you know, they pushed the envelope on a bunch of stuff, but they always intimidated people out of lawsuits because they had a lot of money and they also had the First Amendment. But the First Amendment didn't apply that much here is once again, it, it was a violation of the right of privacy as opposed to a commentary on a person. They didn't say Hulk Hogan's a scumbag like that doesn't give rise to a case. But, hey, this sex tape that you didn't even know was being that, that was being recorded um, here, we're going to put it on the Internet for everyone to see. That's a violation of the right of privacy. Anyways, but they figure Gawker figures, all right, this guy, we've got a big insurance policy. We have deep pockets. And this is how litigation usually goes, particularly between an individual and a big company. It's really aside from the the, the legal substance of the case, it's who who can who, who has the money to draw it out. Right. And so Hogan sues and the, you know, the nobody really pays attention to the case for a year or two, but it's going along. And Hogan keeps pushing the case forward. And one, Gawker keeps on screwing up. The case keeps on going poorly for Gawker. They've got cocky writers who keep on going under depositions and making stupid comments. Um, and Hogan gets the case moved from New York to you know his hometown in Florida, where he lived in Florida, very favorable to him. And But th- then they start, you know, they okay, let's give this guy some money and get rid of him. They offer Hogan 5 million. They offer Hogan 10 million. And he turns it down. And they're like, what the fuck is going on here? Why is he turning down like he doesn't we've looked at he doesn't have much money his funds are dwindling like how is he paying for this case it's expensive and and we're not buying him out of it so eventually after a bunch of of settlement offers are rejected hogan takes the case all way all the way to court to a jury and nails gawker with a 130 million dollar judgment and puts gawker out of business it's an incredible story a few days after the verdict is uh, after the verdict it turns out you know I remember seeing the headline. It was like Gawker had always suspected somebody was funding Hulk Hogan's lawsuit and that he someone was. It was Peter Thiel. And it's like, what? Mind blowing. Holy shit. Where the hell? How the fuck does Peter Thiel get involved in this, get wrapped up with Hulk Hogan and is kind of in the shadows funding this lawsuit to take down Gawker, who he hated um, for a number of reasons and, you know, and their approach towards commentary on public figures and some stories they had written about him. And it's like, wow, just how do you keep that under wraps? How do you, you know, keep, how do you have the resilience to keep going with that type of conspiracy in the shadows all the way and see it all the way through? I just thought it was an incredible story. But uh, anyways, this week, um, a Gawker, you know, you know, these days, all the Gawker infants and and the people work for Gawker who are decrying their, you know, the, the, their bankruptcy. Um, they like whining about this stuff. So Elizabeth Spires, who was a former Gawker writer, in response to a tweet that said, tell us a true story from your life that sounds made up. Elizabeth Spires responded, Hulk Hogan and a billionaire who might be a vampire spent 10 million to put a blog I started out of business. And this is, I'm sorry, like this is bullshit. Okay. Let's just get this straight. And this is something to keep in mind whenever you see these cases, or if you ever end up involved in one, that part of litigation strategy is who's outspending who, who's going to spend the other person out of the case. So all that happened with Peter Thiel and Hulk Hogan was that Gawker was trying to spend Hogan out of the case. And Thiel just gave him enough money to go take the case all the way to the jury and have it decided on its merits and the substance and the facts. That's all that happened. So I just can't take this phony narrative that's out here that, you know, a lot of other media it's like, oh, I, I don't agree with Gawker. I don't like Gawker, but it's dire you know, consequences that a, a billionaire can just go fund a case to take out one of his enemies. A billion. OK, let's just get this straight. The only reason Peter Thiel was able to take uh, take out Gawker is because Gawker broke the law. Right. 
This case was decided on its substance, on the facts, right? If it, he didn't just he didn't just flood Gawker with so much money that they had to, that they went out of business. They lost in front of a jury, right? It would have been different if if Teal had spent so much money that Gawker couldn't keep up with the litigation and they had to settle and it was too much money. In that case, it's a different story. But that's not what happened. So I think a lot of people around you know First Amendment issues tabloid press and these issues they and and the and it also goes back to the battle between you know and how elon musk is viewed and the attacks from people like elizabeth warren and a lot of her media surrogates is that you know, nobody these billionaires are not able to go by the court system okay if gawker didn't fuck up on the merits they wouldn't be out of business if they hadn't released a sex tape they'd be fine okay but they had their strategy turned around on them they wanted a flood they wanted a swamp hogan with money that he, he wouldn't have money to continue with the case and teal let him go toe to toe and that's what happened there so once again if you like this this if this sounds interesting in this story i highly re recommend the book conspiracy by ryan holiday and everything about i just find it utterly fascinating and we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break we are coming up on the two-year anniversary of this pandemic, um, and the pandemic obviously being the the defining, you know, most significant uh, event of modern times. And I think the story of the pandemic is inextricably linked to the story of China's ascent in the 21st century um, and its threat to America as the the world's uh, sole hegemonic power. Um, and, and those two stories cannot be told separately. And if we're going to tell that story, there, there are few people on Earth who are more uh, knowledgeable and more equipped to tell it or contribute to it than my guest today, Dr. Peter Navarro. Um, Dr. Navarro was the director of the Office of Trade and Manufacturing, reporting to the head of the National Economic Council Chief uh, Gary Cohn during the Trump administration, was also the chief coordinator of the Defense Production Act in regards to the pandemic. Uh, Dr. Navarro, thank you for joining us. Hey, great to be with you. And, and just to clarify the record, I, I never reported to Gary Cohn. <laughs> uh -huh. That was... Oh. That was a matter of of some uh, some conflict within the White House. Uh, uh -huh. Chief of Staff John Kelly, uh, one of the most abusive people to ever walk the planet, tried to force me to do that, and I basically told him to go Brandon. So, um, <laughs> you know, um, that, that's a story in and of itself. Uh, I'm and sure I we'll did listen at least a little bit into that in Trump Time book. But it's great to be with you here. The period from 2001 to 2016, let's call it the period uh, in between China joining the World Trade Organization and you, you know, joining the Trump administration as as, as an you know lead official on uh, essentially addressing China economic aggression. Um, and you were you were sounding the alarm pretty early about, you know, the relationship between the two, the two countries, China's ascent and, and the, you know, the economic tactics that they were they were taking in, you know, and and trying to rise economically and threaten American hegemony. Um, you had two books, The Coming China Wars and Death by China. Um, would love to hear your perspective on on that period and what you noticed um, and, and, you know, kind of elaborating on a, a few different pillars of Chinese economic aggression that you note in your book. And, um, and you know, also why, why or why not were American public officials or people in power, um, were they were they addressing it properly or, or you know, to the extent that they were not? How so? Yeah. Well, for me, you know, my journey really began uh, in uh, 1973 when I uh, when I joined the Peace Corps and went over to Thailand. And I think um, I think it's fair to say that far too many Americans don't have a um, 
an adequate worldview. You know, we have such a great country. It, we're very kind of parochial about who we are. And and um, I uh, I was able, uh, while I was over in Asia for three years, to travel quite extensively uh, to most of the countries there and, and get a, a keener sense of what Asia was all about and what what uh, China's role was um, there. So you know, fast forward to 2003 when I'm teaching in an MBA classroom at the University of California to supposedly fully employed uh, executives. And I begin with alarm to note that uh, a lot of them are getting unemployed. And it was like paradoxical to me because Orange County, California has one of the best labor markets in the world. Um, yet when I began to look at this more closely, all roads led to Beijing. And, and then I began to put two and two together. Yeah, in 2001, Communist China was shoehorned into the World Trade Organization by Bill Clinton and the Republican Congress. Uh, they immediately began to dump their products um, into and I just want markets. to be clear on that is that is that, you know, while Bill Clinton uh, left office in early 2001, he ha- and Bill Clinton in the Republican Congress had had lit the fuse on China, it, it, China's entrance into the World Trade Organization while he was still president. Yeah, um, yeah. it was a, a fait accompli by the time uh, George Bush rolled around what mm-hmm. what Clinton did. And I feature him uh, fairly extensively in my Death by China movie. I, I show his speeches and how he's talking about. You know, for the first time, communist China will open their markets. And for the first time, it's going to be a, a, a one-way street, you know, straight from America to China, this, that, and the other thing. Mm-hmm. And it was really one of the great seductions of all time. And it's it's unclear whether Clinton, uh, who had, had <laughs> ran in 92 against the butchers of Beijing, you know, eight years later, he's like mm-hmm. uh, helping them get in, in there. And, you know, it's like, was was that naivete on on Billy's part, or, or was he just simply uh, captured by the corporate interests? But but you know he I, I hold him largely responsible for the lobbying effort because um, mm-hmm. it was the Republicans at the time who wanted to do that. The Democrats and their organized labor folks knew damn well it was going to be um, devastating to yeah. uh, blue collar Americans, but. Um, you know, at the time, you know, I, I'm a macroeconomist, and my my job is to like forecast movements of both the stock market and the economy. And it's like I, I learned that you couldn't really do that unless you understood China. So I, I I did a deep dive one year research project to get to the bottom of what was going on. The no hypothesis, as we say in the trade, was yeah, it was just cheap labor, and they had a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I discovered would be the beginning of my construct of seven the seven deadly sins the seven deadly mercantile sins of china i did an academic study which which pointed out other things like currency manipulation and dumping and intellectual property theft and lax environmental regulations oh and by the way that cheap labor was often slave labor mm-hmm. so um that that gave birth to uh the uh, the coming China Wars book, the first in the trilogy, and it was that book that caught the eye of President Trump uh, in 2011. Uh, he made it you know, one of his top ten China books, and and from there the relationship blossomed. 
Mm-hmm. And, and so it was, I, I found myself first on the campaign in 2016 as the top trade and econ guy. And then um, um, when, when we won, I uh, went into the White House. And, you know, fast forward, and I think uh, in the interim time book, a book is written um, as much as, as a historical fact as it is mm-hmm. kind of a dramatic production, because a lot of the things that happened were really cinematic. You know, the first chapter of in Trump time, I'm in the East Wing of the White House. The commies are there on stage getting ready to sign a, a skinny trade deal with us. It's January 15, 2020. The boss is at the top of his game looking like a lock for re-election. And I'm sitting there in a cold sweat thinking to myself, what do these commie bastards know that they're not telling us about the pandemic? Yeah. yeah. So I'd love to just tee that up real quick for those who haven't haven't read the book, right? So you're sitting there, January, once again, this is January 2020, right? So there's, there's word out of China that there's a virus circulating. We're seeing some kind of strange lockdown measures in Wuhan, a city of 11 million people. Um, you, you know, and as one of the the, the heads, uh, the the head officials mandated with essentially recalibrating our trade and economic relationship with China from 2017 through 2020, and it has all led up to this moment where you know the first major, while while there had been a tariff war, there had been kind of you know economic volleying back and forth between the U.S. and Chi- the, the U.S. and China, but now we're finally saw we're finally at the White House signing. A, a trade deal that is in furtherance of your ultimate goal, which is to repatriate a lot of the supply chains and, you know, like I said, recalibrate the economic relationship between the U.S. and China. January 15th, when at the signing of this phase one trade deal, what was the word from the from the Chinese representatives? How were they framing? How were they they presenting the the virus and, and the virus situation in Wuhan? Were they, were they letting on at all the the gravity or what could at that point probably be firmly projected as as you know a, a, as the impact of the virus as it spread across the world? What, what was their story at that time? This may shock you, but there was no story at all. They simply didn't talk about it. Not a word, not a single Mm. word. They just sat there and smiled and acted like nothing was happening. And look, we know now a couple of things On, on their side of the Pacific. We know that that virus likely escaped sometime in October because that's when they first began to mobilize forces around the lab that did coordinate off. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when they started to uh, destroy evidence. And um, one thing that you mentioned in your book that I think, and I definitely also want to get into the particulars of the evidence around, you know, its origination and their claims of, of the Wuhan wet market. But you mentioned that they washed and bleached the wet market. And that's, that's an interesting claim and something that, that, you know, I think aligns very much with a lot of their suspicious behavior around the investigation into the origination of the virus. Could you maybe talk a a little bit about what your discoveries were about the wet market and how they treated it? Well, let let me come at it from Fauci's perspective in January 2020, what he said and Mm -hmm. then what he didn't say. What, What he said was the virus was at low risk and that it came from nature. What he knew at the time that was that it almost certainly came from a lab he himself had funded and not only had funded, but had funded the dangerous gain of function experiments that likely led to the creation uh, mm-hmm. of the virus. Now, I, I say that because um, the 
the wet market was the other possible source of the virus uh, that they would argue. And, you know, at, at first blush, it was plausible mm-hmm. because SARS-CoV-1 uh, was quickly traced, quickly traced to raccoon dogs and civet cats. It's what's called a direct progenitor, Matt. This is like how, how something jumps from an animal to a human. The direct mm-hmm. progenitor in that case was the civet civet cats and raccoon dogs. Um, but the problem with this virus, uh, uh, you couldn't find an originator. You, could, you couldn't find a progenitor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've looked at thousands, thousands, thousands of things. So when they, when, when the Chinese quickly went in and bleached the Wuhan wet market, they weren't trying to clean that, what they were trying to do was remove any evidence that would prove that, yeah, it did not come from the wet market. In other words, if you went in there forensically and scoured the place, you wouldn't find any sign that that had come from there. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, I think the, the the more pertinent piece of damning evidence is the fact that that not only did they did they uh, shred a bunch of evidence there and, and strip the internet of uh, all sorts of things, they actually made people disappear. There's mm-hmm. people who worked in that lab uh, that have never been seen or heard from again. So I look, they, look. There's no question. There's no question uh, that China is responsible, and Fauci was a was an accomplice. Mm-hmm. Um, a big part of the in Trump time book was me trying to do an executive order that would have held China accountable, and thereby successfully shifted the blame that the American people was pointing at President Trump to communist China, where it rightly belonged. But, it, you know, as you and I talk to, to this day, we still don't know uh, what the original genome of that virus is. Now, and that's very un- and that's that's very unique, right, in all likelihood and for other um, you know, other uh, 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 similar viruses and coronaviruses and MERS and SARS-1 they have been able to sequence yes. it and find the progenitor. Yes. And there okay. would be no no reason not to. There's no re- uh, yeah, there's no there's no plausible, up, right. There's no reason complicit in it. But yeah. here's the importance of this and the, and the, Fauci's big lie of omission was not to tell us of the role of the lab and his gain of function experiments in the creation of the virus in January 2020 which deprived me and the boss from being able to appropriately pressure China to tell us, among other things, what the original genome looked like. Why was that important? Because part of my remit that fell upon me was to try to help uh, develop a a vaccine. Mm -hmm. And instead of developing um, what's called like a virus attenuated vaccine, like for polio and smallpox, which we might have been able to do if we knew exactly what we were dealing with, um, we went with these... um, experimental gene technologies, the mRNA technologies, which are effectively, I mean, you can think about it as, as uh, provoking a, a narrow spectrum set of uh, immunities mm-hmm. based on the injection of a relatively small number of spike proteins. Mm-hmm. And not surprisingly, we're seeing that these experimental gene technologies do not protect people against mm-hmm infection of, for example, Delta and Omicron. Mm-hmm. And um, it's an open question as to whether they uh, 
uh, do anything uh, at all better than um, those people who have gotten infected and already have antibodies. And no I mean, doubt. really a sensible strategy would have been, and this is what I advocated back in February, 2020 was, yeah, pursue the vaccines, but flood the zone with therapeutics, cheap mm -hmm. therapeutics like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. And I absolutely want to get deep into the the kind of chatter and the the thinking behind you know your involvement in Operation Warp Speed and also your directives to to develop therapeutics. But I think in, you know as we kind of go about this chronologically, I think it really you know your other activities and this uh, winter and spring of 2020 kind of funnel into that perfectly almost. So I'd love to kind of get in into that after January 15th. Um, you were one of the earliest members of you know earliest public officials period anywhere sounding the alarm about. The coronavirus and with a memo on january 29th 2020 um if you could tell us about the genesis of that memo and its contents sure i um was dispatched by president trump to the situation room on january 28th 2020 mm -hmm. uh, he had decided already to impose a travel ban on communist china mm -hmm. and he needed the support of the then nascent White House Coronavirus Task Force, which was balking at the idea. So and they balked so, at the idea of a, tra of a travel ban. Yes. And okay. so I went to the sit room. Um, Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney was, at, was chairing the meeting. We had uh, the usual suspects there, uh, Redfield from the CDC, Azar from Health and Human Services, I had one of Pompeo's hacks on my left shoulder. <laughs> there was this little guy with little round glasses sitting across from me who I promptly got in an argument with about the whole thing. He kept insisting travel bans don't work. Uh, and at one point I said to him, uh, you mean to tell me that if 20,000 Chinese nationals are coming in every day to Kennedy and O'Hare and LAX, many of them lit up like a Christmas tree with the Wuhan virus that we're better off just letting them come in. Is that what you are saying, sir? And he kept just saying that travel bans don't work. And this guy, I looked at him, I thought, you know, this guy, whoever he is, he thinks he's smarter than he is and he's probably going to hurt this country. And lo and behold, it was none other than St. Fauci. Didn't know he was walked on water. Didn't know he was supposed to be a genius. I just took the measure of the man and it was like, nah, this guy doesn't know what hell he's talking about and mm -hmm. by the way ex post i know that he already knew the thing was from the lab and he was responsible for it so um i at, at the end of that meeting it it, it ended in, in chaos because mulvaney tried to assert that there was a consensus against the ban and i said okay. no 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 mick <laughs> ain't no consensus in this room and mm -hmm. he threw up his hands and the meeting adjourned and i went home that night and uh, I thought about the whole thing early next morning. I penned that memo you refer to. Mm -hmm. um, it's a it's you know, I'm a Harvard trained economist and in industrial organization with a with some expertise in game theory. So this was a, a game theory memo that basically looked at what what the dominant strategy should be on our part. And basically, I said that it was the travel ban. And if you didn't do that and some other things. Um, and think about how prescient this was. I said over half a million Americans would die and mm -hmm. there would be over two trillion dollars in damages. Now, um, and that was just from the travel ban. And, you know, I, obviously more, more than that have died and 
we spent trillions and trillions more than I predicted. But that that was a at that point in time, that was that was as prescient as it got. And mm -hmm. I, I I and I just knew in my bones, knowing communist China, knowing what I knew about about um, viruses, that we we were in for tough times and we damn well ought to do something about it. In early February 2020, once again before, the vast majority of people were even paying, at least stateside, were paying attention to the issue. You penned another memo, I believe, which you mentioned in your Trump Time book, um, laying out the five-vector strategy to attack the pandemic. So I'd love uh, for you to you know, elaborate on the five vectors, one of which is vaccine production and then this get into some of the details around the thinking about how we, we went ahead uh in in crafting operation warp speed and the, the thinking behind it well okay let's take the, the five two of them which are like salt and pepper like vaccine and therapeutics mm -hmm. um which which are like prevention and treatment um and then the other three um the ppe the personal protective equipment. That's the mask, gloves, goggles, thermometers, bulk oximeters, all of that. You need that mm -hmm. for all the frontline defenders, um, ventilators for the hospitals, and then the, the testing equipment. So I knew I, and, and I wasn't doing this alone. I was blessed. There's a great character in the in Trump type book, Dr. Stephen Hatfield, who was tremendously helpful um, to me in thinking through some of the issues. And then before he went over to the dark side, uh, Dr. Rick Bright from HHS, which is a mm -hmm. story in and of itself. But um, with Hatfield, um, we knew going in that it was sensible to pursue a vaccine. Uh, but we also knew that the odds were long that would it be a silver bullet just based on the history. Mm -hmm. Now, the good news is we were able to get something done in a third of the time, truly in Trump time, by turning the paradigm of vaccine development on its head. Um, I won't get into the details of that, but we did you, you it want to if, if possible, I'd love to. I think that would be, I think a lot of people um, right. who have, enough, I would love to hear the details of that because. Right. Well, this, yeah, this is straight out of business school. Let's um, hear it. To where, where, to where I used to teach, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the way um, vaccines are traditionally done is that you find uh, a candidate. That's step one. And then step two is to go through uh, phase one through three trials. Phase one is for safety, two and three are for safety and efficacy. You know, is it safe and does it work, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, sequentially you go through this and only after you determine uh, after phase three that something's safe and efficacious to you does a drug company usually start to invest in the capital to mass produce those that vaccine or that medicine, whatever it is, mm -hmm. right? And from a private sector point of view, that's the prudent thing to do because you don't want to make plans to manufacture something that turns out not to be safe and efficacious, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of sequential paradigm traditionally used. It takes a long time. Vaccine development can take like three years. Mm -hmm. What we said was, no, 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 no. We're going to do a simultaneous approach and We've got like six different shots on goal, we call it, mm -hmm. um, six different possibilities. And we're going to move those through the phase three trials. But at the same time, we're going to prepare to mass produce every single one of those mm -hmm. 
even if we wasted money on some of them that didn't pan out under the uh, the theory that that wouldn't be wasted money at all, because if you had the thing ready, you would save a bunch more money by having it ready than not having it ready. So that you would have to essentially toss aside some traditional you know, uh, economic efficiency concerns in, in, you know, at the sake of speed in order to get it out into the market, save lives and, you know, help unlock, uh, uh, kind of counter other economic damage from the pandemic. And the important teaching point there is that it's it's efficiencies from the private sector point of view, from the public mm-hmm. sector. It's a, what we call in economics a market failure because yeah. you get an underinvestment in vaccine development in an emergency. Mm-hmm. And so to overcome that, uh, we use government funds to basically say, hey, Pfizer, hey, Moderna, hey, J&J, hey, AstraZeneca. Um, as you're doing this, ramp up and get ready to have 150 million doses for us as soon as um, you get the green light from the FDA. So, I mean, that's a it's a it's a case study straight out of, uh, um, you know, a, a business school. And, and it worked like a charm. Um, but but um, I never dreamed that the damn thing would be used as a weapon. Uh, economically, culturally, and socially, the, the vaccine passports and you're mm-hmm. fired and this, that, and the other thing. And and importantly, I knew going in that this thing was was um, a crapshoot and that the far more important vector in the five-vector strategy was low-cost therapeutics. Mm-hmm. Right? These are these are treatments that people could use if they got infected. They could take them early and on and, and um, reduce the mo- severity of their symptoms, uh, reduce the probability they go to the hospital, reduce the probability of being a ventilator, and reduce the mortality rate. And so one thing you mentioned in your in your book, it, particularly in regards to the virus, uh, so, sorry, to the, the vaccine, and it, it's definitely kind of reflective of, you know, what I think is sound analysis about the virus in general is age and risk stratification, right? And that even going into the thinking even behind the vaccine and even understood generally at at this time in February, April, uh, March, April of 2020 is the, the really intense uh, st- age and risk stratification of COVID, that it is far, far, far more dangerous to people in certain high risk categories and thus ha- the the, applic- the uh, ap- you know, how applicable and the value of the vaccine and the intent behind the vaccine is, you know, is also stratified in terms of providing protective cover and and therapeutic benefit to them. And so, you know, you, you lay it out very, very uh, uh, cogently in your book. But what, you know, what was the understanding at the time and how did that inform the the thinking behind Operation Warp Speed and vaccine development? Well, in the fog of the pandemic war in, in February and March, we had uh, little statistical analysis on who the targets of the virus would be would it would it be kind of a uniform attack and everybody would face equal risk or would it be as you say stratified we, we had no idea mm-hmm. at the time you know my worst case scenario um was that it would hit hit our kids and mm-hmm. and uh, at least thus far and thank god it was just the opposite the, the, yeah. the, and and what we've learned now is that it's 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 dangerous 
almost exclusively to senior citizens and or people with uh, significant comorbidities, which are often senior citizens. And so, you know, all of this is a learning experience. I, I, the, um, the, the optimal strategy um, today uh, and, and as, as early as probably April, I realized this, um, would be to uh, have a parsimonious vaccine strategy uh, where you only vaccinated uh, those high at highest risk, the mm-hmm. seniors and the comorbidities. And the reason why you don't go beyond that is basic virology 101 that viruses mutate. And again, this is all in the book and it's all in my memos. And this is Doc Hatfield. It's mm-hmm. like we, we is, you're, you're great. Sorry, pastor. Stephen. This is Stephen Hatfield. Is his Stephen name? Hatfield. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you give us his what in his position was once again. Uh, he was he was uh, my de facto uh, medical advisor. Uh-huh. I, he had no official position in the White House, but he came in every day and uh, worked with me mm-hmm. uh, often through the night on this thing. And there's a great quote in there about how viruses are clever little beasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they want to kill as many people as possible uh, so they don't kill you quickly like Ebola uh, they they want to kill you uh, slowly so that they can seed and spread. Mm-hmm. Oh, and by the way, they will mutate, right? So so the point here with vaccines, this is a really important point for your listeners, yeah. is that um, the fewer people that you vaccinate, the less chance you have of a mutation that is vaccine resistant. Let me say mm-hmm. that one more time: the fewer people in our population you vaccinate, the less chance you have of a mutation that is vaccine resistant. Now, if you flip that on its head and say, if you vaccinate everybody, you not only have a high probability of a vaccine resistant mutation, you you can breed a mutation that's vaccine resistant that can kill everybody that's vaccinated. Mm -hmm. That's the that's the end of the world scenario right there. So we're playing. You know, it's like Fauci and the Chinese communists played with God. And right now, Biden's playing with fire with his universal back strategy. And so that's why the therapeutics are so important. Therapeutics, which can which can get people through the disease in a way where they come out the other side, not only healthy, but with antibodies against the virus mm-hmm. is the way to what's called herd immunity, which is a, a, a state of, 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 of grace. In a, in a society where you're no longer vulnerable uh, in large numbers to a disease. Mm-hmm. And so what was, once again, you know, that that period, right, as we're first encountering this the coronavirus and, and learning things in real time, um, there was just, and we'll talk about how the conversation around some therapeutics from a, a political standpoint and within the, the media ecosystem just went off the rails. What was the early discussion around therapeutics? And, and obviously there was some um, this, there was R and D and there was, there was beta testing, right. And that there were some, there were some um, therapeutics that were suspected and, and, as good, you know, that had uh, had been seen to have other value as helping with other viral infection, um, you know, that we it just made sense to test out and pursue and research as potential um, therapeutics for COVID. Um, so, what what were the lear- the key learnings and the conversation around that spring two thousand twenty? 
Well, uh, go back to February of 2020. Uh, one, one of my memos um, stressed the need uh, to move forward with uh, two particular types of therapeutics, uh, remdesivir and monoclonal antibodies. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't know whether remdesivir would work at the time. And my admonition to the task force was, let's secure our supplies, get this thing through clinical trials and see what we have. Mm-hmm. And um, the good news is that we did that. The bad news is that it's a very expensive drug mm-hmm. that can only be in, administered intravenously and is usually reserved for people who are pretty damn sick. So mm-hmm. it's not the kind of therapeutic that, 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 that really can be used in a widespread basis. Monoclonal mm-hmm. antibodies is, um, is a really encouraging technology. Uh, it basically injects you with antibodies uh, to fight the virus that, that you weren't able to develop on your own. But the problem with that is that there's some research that suggests that, it, that if you use them, it interferes with your body's ability to create its own antibodies, right? Mm-hmm. So all this stuff. So, so there was that, but then there was also hydroxychloroquine. Mm-hmm. And this uh, there's a, the longest chapter in the Interim Time book, chapter seven, is about um, in homage. Hydroxyhysteria. Yeah. yeah. And I think this is in this there's I, I think it's very much justifiable that this was the longest chapter in your book because the convert for the, there's almost two pieces to this. There's the actual scientific you know analysis of hydroxychloroquine and its effectiveness as a covid treatment treatment, but also it's handling in the media and the politic politicization around hydroxychloroquine and what that says about the media environment. Um, so, you know, I, I'd love for you to, to get into that both your or initial just kind of very objective plain analysis of this treatment uh from a from a scientific and health perspective but also what we saw in the media how this you know this almost became the proxy this one topic for how the discourse around everything having to do with covid just got poisoned and and just went off the rails well, hydroxy had two things going against it immediately. Uh, one, President Trump suggested it first. So there, there was immediate kind of uh, orange man, bad, he must be crazy kind of thing. Uh, but the other thing is it's like one of the cheapest and safest drugs on the market. You know, for, for uh, lupus patients, rheumatoid arthritis patients, they take the same amount of hydroxychloroquine every day of their lives that a COVID patient would have to take for just seven days at a cost of twelve dollars, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So just as a as a profit proposition for big pharma, it's it's not a medicine uh, that they uh, are going to make not, a lot of were, money. From. They were not incentivized to to they, support it. Correct. Yeah. Whereas you know, for like Fauci. He would dump on hydroxychloroquine because it didn't have, uh, in his view, adequate scientific evidence. But then he'd go out of his way for remdesivir, which was produced by one of his big pharma buds, mm-hmm. to, to, to basically um, grease the skids on the clinical trial that was run. I mean, he mm-hmm. actually changed the endpoint from mortality rate to days in, days in the hospital. And it's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Just to yeah, be friendly or to find run. out if this thing can help save lives, right? Would I, would I be correct in saying, and this is what you hint at at your book, and it's definitely what I think uh, a, a lot of people can kind of just instinctually glean from 
uh, uh, from watching Fauci over the last 18, 19 months is that he has a bureaucrat sense of risk aversion. And fair enough, that's fun in many bureaucratic settings, but that makes him less good at the job that he that is the role that in the responsibility that he's been given right now, that he continually is looking for, you know, uh, silver bullet data that he will not act based on on you know high probabilities and accept a certain degree of of the unknown um, to his detriment and that that you know in many ways does not serve the population that it, that is hanging on his word and that is taking his instruction. Would I be correct in saying that? I think that's uh, that's too kind. If if you look at the data about, for example, the the uh, the vaccines, uh, Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, if you actually look at the data, there's some very real risks associated with those treatments Mm -hmm. that Fauci, in fact, wanted to bury. Now, he loves to tell the noble lie. When we had a shortage of masks, he told people don't wear masks so he could preserve them for the frontline defenders. When he wants to implement his universal vaccine policy, he tells you, you got to get vaxxed because it'll protect you from the virus uh, and won't hurt you. When he knows full well from the data that the vaccine is not uh, not bulletproof, it's leaky. And, uh, oh, yeah, you're going to have to get a booster. Oh, yeah, you're going to have to get another booster. Oh, yeah, you're going to have to wear air- a mask on airplanes for the rest of your life. Oh, yeah, this is probably going to come back every year. I mean, he's always he's always moving the goalposts goal uh, and you have to ask the question. I, 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 the, the more I know about the guy, the more I think that he's just he's just a, a better looking version of Joe Biden and he's not playing with a full deck mentally. I mean, yeah. he knows kind of what to say and things like that. Um, in terms of words coming out of his mouth. But when you parse them, they don't make sense. Fauci, Peter Dadzak, Francis Collins, their relation to the Wuhan Institute of Virology and what your discoveries are. And if you're if you were in a court of law putting a a case forward for the the, you know, the notion, the claim that the virus originated there. Let me take you to January 28, 2020, again, back to that situation room. Mm-hmm. where I'm, I'm going head-to-head with Fauci on the travel ban. Um, I know now that Fauci knew then that the virus almost certainly came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Mm-hmm. And, and here's the case and facts and evidence. First of all, we know that the virus came from China. We know mm-hmm. that it came from Wuhan, and we know that it surfaced within yards, yards of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. We have ruled out categorically the zoonotic theory, that is, that it came from nature. So that leaves by Occam's razor and logic that it came from the lab. Now, Fauci, and how have we necessarily ruled that out? Is it unlikely or zoonotic, uh, zootropic? Has it been ruled out or is it just unlikely based on what we know right now? By, by the amount of direct progenitors we have explored mm-hmm. and not found any uh-huh. in the tens of thousands. We, we are basically out of suspects, okay. right? And then there's 
I mean, there's the fern cleavage issue. There's the whole. Uh, Could you would nature. you be able to get into that the fern cleavage issue just briefly? Well, if you look at the virus itself, um, it looks like it was genetically engineered mm-hmm. based on this thing called the fern cleavage. I mean, you would look at that and say that didn't come from nature if you were a virologist, right? Mm-hmm. So, so we know that, right? And 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 we know as as another fact that Fauci funded the Wuhan lab, which mm-hmm. brings his culpability into question. Know that in 2017, Fauci went behind the back of the Trump administration to lift the ban on gain of function experiments. And that had been had, that had been outlawed. That had been shut down in 2014. Because it was acknowledged by the Obama administration because they were too damn dangerous. Yeah. Right? And they and knew that's the technology mm-hmm. which effectively can be used by the Chinese communist bioweapons people to genetically engineer a bioweapon that can kill people out of, mm-hmm. out of harmless bad viruses. Mm-hmm. And Fauci had been told by a script scientist that it was genetically engineered in all likelihood. Now, mm-hmm. from there, we go to. The fact that Fauci then used this guy, Peter Daszak, you mentioned, to orchestrate a cover up to make it seem like this thing came from the lab by organizing a bunch of scientists to write letters and make statements saying, of course, this came from nature, not the lab. Right. Meanwhile, Daszak had gotten money. He was the conduit for a lot of the money to go into the gain of function experiments. I mean, Mm -hmm. it stinks the high heaven. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. no question in my mind, there should be no question in anybody's mind that Fauci is complicit in what happened in Wuhan, China at that lab. And that his lie of omission by not at least telling us about that possibility as early as January 2020 deprived us of the ability to develop uh, a a virus attenuated vaccine in the mode of uh, smallpox and, and polio vaccine that would be a true vaccine and instead has left us in this limbo of experimental gene therapy technologies. Mm-hmm. And there's another individual, uh, a woman named Shi Zheng Li, um, Shi who was director yeah, of the- That lady of mm-hmm. Wuhan, she was the one who went a thousand miles away to a bat cave um, in, uh, in the southern province and brought back these bat viruses some of which had been known to infect and kill minors there, but but were not humanly transmissible. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. these, we believe, were the were the uh, effectively the building blocks um, for the genetic engineering. The 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 and Dasik. There's a great uh, scene in the In Trump Time book where Dasik explains on TV in an interview how you just go into the backbone of one of these viruses and inject some stuff and thereby turn it, inject some spike proteins and turn it into a human killer. Mm-hmm. So, so essentially, you know, the, 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 the theorem is um, the bat, the bats that were secured from these caves in Southern China taken to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, gain yeah. of function research as applied in order to, you know, explore um, what happens when you make them more prolific um, or, you know, as you put it in your book, improves the ability, ability of a pathogen to cause disease. And yeah. the evidence points to that being the origination of the COVID-19. Yes. Yep. Yep. And certain, and certainly seems to be, and, and a very plausible, as you mentioned, Occam's razor, it's 
This was this is not a far flung notion. It's not a far flung theory. This is if you were sitting there in, even in February 2020 and looking at the most likely explanation for this, that's right in front of everyone's face. Yet such a, a pursuit of this theory was demonized and dismissed and claimed to be debunked, which obviously it wasn't. What do you think was driving the the you know the response or the demonization of this theory and and the you know the claims of a lab leak even though it was you know fairly obvious at least to uh, uh, to investigate based on the facts that were right in front of everybody's face i i think it's very simple the, the whole thrust of the campaign against donald trump was to blame him for the pandemic and if you blame communist china uh instead you couldn't blame trump and what I was trying to do um, is shift the blame rightly to China with an mm -hmm. executive order that would have held China accountable. It's part of the story in Trump Time book. But I think it was as simple as that. And, and as Corey Lewandowski once said that, you know, these people who were fighting Trump hated him more than they loved this country or mm -hmm. in this case wanted to save lives. And there's just been a lot of bloodshed and, and we need to get to the bottom of it. Fauci needs to go. Communist China needs to be held accountable. And uh, I really appreciate this uh, very thoughtful conversation. Absolutely. And, and appreciate you taking the, the time as well. Um, and, you know, I know that you have to go right now. I, I you know, I, admittedly, and this is uh, my fault for uh, for the, you know, um, kind of not making the pieces fit timing wise. I really would love to get in. I think it would be critical to the the interview quality overall into the the kind of five heinous acts of the CCP. And do you think that we might be able to even find 10 to 15 minutes um Sometimes, you know, it, in the next couple of days, if at all possible, just to, to kind of one more segment. Yeah, this, this this week is, is tough, to be mm -hmm. honest, or maybe maybe next week. But the, the worst of the five heinous acts, mm -hmm. again, this I really do got to run right here. I'm going to no, no problem. get in trouble, um, was was shutting down communist China at the same time they let uh, airliners yep. fly around the world with Chinese nationals. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. that that did it right mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, understood. But, um, Listen, I, well, I'd love to see if we can find that time. I think it would be, you know, kind of critical to the interview. But obviously, at your whenever you're free. Um, okay. But but this was fantastic, and you know, really appreciate your time. And um, you know, I'll talk to Erica, and we'll, we'll see. You know, we'll see if we can coordinate that. Does that sound good? Yeah. Fantastic. All right, man, I got to run. Take awesome, care. Pete. Thanks so much, bye Peter. Bye. So that is it. Um, hope you enjoyed this and my interview with Dr. Peter Navarro once again. Not asking everybody to agree with everything that go that that is said in that interview, um, but we need to be looking at people who have firsthand accounts of important situations, right? And I think Peter is, and I think he dispenses a ton of interesting, relevant information. But I hope you find it valuable. So happy holidays, Merry Christmas, everybody! I'll see you soon. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. The Prevailing Narrative is a Cavalry Audio production in association with iHeartRadio. Produced by Brandon Morgan, executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Matt Belinsky.